Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Naomi Kupitsky is the author of The Family, which, by the way, was so good. I listened to this on audiobook and it was, she's just amazing. Anyway, Naomi was born in Berkeley, California and attended NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. She lives in San Francisco, but calls many places home. The Family is her first novel. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Family. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. You said you've had a month off from doing events. I feel like there was (laughs) this huge media storm around your book and everything, getting it chosen and by major book club. Like it's been amazing for you. So what is it like now that you've come off the the ride for a second? Yeah. I mean, it was it was a month unlike any month that I have experienced in my life, the month of November. I, you know, I simultaneously was navigating just feeling like so grateful that the book is getting this audience. Like the exposure that I'm getting, the exposure that the book is getting is really rare. And and I felt really lucky. And at the same time, it felt super unnatural for me to be in the public eye in that way so suddenly. So I feel a lot more like myself now. If we had talked a few weeks ago, you would have gotten this like shell of a person. And now I feel more like a human being, but it's, yeah, it's been really wild and really exciting. Maybe this is what I should do. I should just always schedule my interviews like a month or two or three. Or actually, I have been doing that not on purpose, but yeah, then I get you, the you get more of a human being, <laughs> which is good, which is what I want. Yeah. <laughs> so, for listeners who aren't familiar with your book yet, could you tell them a little more about what it's about? Sure. So, the family is the story of Sophia and Antonia, who are two young girls growing up in Brooklyn at the beginning of the 20th century, um, sort of in the middle of the 20th century. And they, they're best friends. Their apartments share a wall. They really grow up alongside one another. And their families are mafia families. So their coming of age is sort of juxtaposed against the backdrop of Brooklyn really growing and expanding and also against the sort of danger and deception and excitement inherent in their families' jobs or cultures. 
I listened to this book, by the way, and I did it on many walks up and down <laughs> this big hill. So every time I did it, I'm like, okay, let's see what the girls are up to. Like, and they, would come, they like came on me on the walks with me. I was struck particularly by listening to it. Like your writing is so good. Like it's just so good. It, like some of the sentences just took my breath away. So I feel like you, you are just, obviously you've been recognized, but you have so much writing talent. So I love when great talent is recognized. So anyway, just well, wanted to say that. Thank you. I really care about language. It's important to me. And so I'm really grateful that some people are connecting with that. And I will just like slide in here that the audiobook for this book is incredible. It's read by Marin Ireland, who I threw out there as a name that like in my wildest pipe dream, this is who would narrate my book. And she agreed to do it. And so I just, at any moment I can, I tell people like, listen to it. It's so good. It was so good. It was great. It was, it was great. So great. Yeah. I, you did such a good job too, of all the different characters, right? Like I just think about them and the scenes that they were in or like the scene in the hotel or the house or whatever, like by the water when the, when one character gets, you know, taken out of the book, so to speak. <laughs> and the, Really good non-spoiler. Uh, it's yeah, hard to talk just, about. You know, the, I mean, the aftermath of, of that loss as well, and I won't say who or anything, but just the way you depicted the effects of that in the home, especially, and on the the widower widower were just so profound and you could just see it. You said things like, you know, the, the indentation in the couch from where this person would sort of sit all day and like the way her, the, her skin was sort of frozen and her hands and like just all these tangible things that, I mean, you were just like right in there in the apartments in both the apartments. Then you would like go across the way and you would go to the big boisterous Sunday dinners or some, you know, and, and have all that. So I don't know. It was just, incredibly immersive. How did you learn to write this way? Is this something you've always done or like, has it always come naturally? Have you always loved kind of the visual elements of writing? That was like a lot. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. I, I love, I love hearing all of that. I mean, I'm getting better at taking compliments about my writing, but it's still a little bit like I want to crawl under the table and then go like, thank you from down there. I think something that's important to me in any art, and for me it's writing, it's always been writing, is figuring out what can this do that no other medium could do. So for me in literature, it's this kind of immersive storytelling where you can be in the physical space and you can also be in the heads of the people who are there. And the emotional topography can have this almost physical effect on the room. And I think that's something that, at least for me, that writing has always been able to do, that fiction has always been able to do, that I don't think any other medium can do. And so when I'm writing, I'm really thinking like, I, I don't know if I'm thinking while I'm writing, but while I'm editing and while I'm thinking about what's important to me, it's what can I tell, how can I tell this story through writing in a way that I would be unable to tell it in any other medium? So that that's definitely present for me. And I think that that has a lot to do with how, how the, like the breadth of each moment and sort of the, the way that I'm dipping into different characters' heads and dipping into the physical space and dipping into the past and just like yeah. trying to bring the moment into this like three-dimensional or multi-dimensional, almost tangible thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. That was like a rambling answer to a long question. That's okay, question, good. So. I feel better. <laughs> That's so interesting how the how emotions change the to physical topography of a place. That's like, that's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, because you also 
write about people's relationships, right? It's not just you're describing a character. It's it's all these like interwoven friendship, like the friendships even between the two girls and all that unspoken ebbing and flowing as people age, right? And different friend groups and and yet you totally captured it. Like the the wishing that you know, Sophia would ask something about Antonia and should she reveal this or should she not? And just you know, the, the friends at school and how they were so close together and then at the new school had their own lives. And I, then when they got intimate with guys, like what that was like. And anyway, so when you're thinking about sort of depicting relationships among your characters, how, like, how do you, it's one thing to imagine the characters, but it's another to have them all be interacting in this little ecosystem. So just, I don't know, tell me a little more about that. So this is my first novel and it, it really like spiraled out of control in a way. I mean that in a loving way at this point, but I started, I started with these two girls and then all really quickly, I realized, well, in order to know them, I have to understand their parents and then I have to understand their parents. And then I'm going to understand their children and I'm going to see how their children were formed by them. And a lot of my editing process was my editor going like, okay, like we cannot do six generations. It's not going to work for this novel. You can know all that, but the readers don't need to know all of that. And I think, so the, the reason I said it's my first novel is because I don't know if this is something that will always be at the fore for me, but for this novel, I wanted to know the characters for their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so Sophia and Antonia were going to have a lifelong friendship. And I knew that. And I knew that to keep it interesting, it was going to have to feel real and it was going to have to ebb and flow the way that a real friendship would. And so I think one of the things that people connect to and that was important to me is the juxtaposition on the one hand of these little moments where, right, where Antonia really wishes that Sophia would ask her something, but she Mm -hmm. won't. And then on the other hand, getting to see them over such a long period of time makes you feel like you understand their friendship in a different context. And it's how I think about my friendships and my long-lasting relationships. On the one hand, these little tiny kind of crystal clear memories that feel like a turning point. And on the other hand, like how are we the same people and how are we also different people than we were 10 years ago? And how is this the same relationship? But since we're different, how is it also a totally different relationship? And how does the relationship become sort of its own character? Yep. So I thought about that a lot and I'm wow. really glad that a lot of it came through. <laughs> <laughs> Even how you brought in World War II and the Holocaust and the one Jewish character who comes over and he's working in the deli and how he ends up where he ends up, like from the very beginning through. So, and how even the family, you know, the family and all of the people reacted and how opportunistic were they going to be? And just to see all that develop, like to see the business angle that they saw and, Mm -hmm. and to know, like, this is what it was like in the U.S. at this time with all this going on? Because I always find myself wondering, like, like so much of historical fiction takes place in Europe or where it yeah. was going on, but there's not a lot, or maybe I just haven't read it lately, or in the U.S., like, where it's removed. But it's still, of course, a huge thing. But mm-hmm. how do you process that? So was your, did you have an interest in that time period, or did you have to do research or talk to people, or I don't know? I definitely... I, so I ended up doing world doing World War II kind of as an accident because the book started when it did, and then there was no way, I mean, that they were going to be teenagers during World War II. And so it ended up being sort of fortuitous because it was this really tense, incredible time in history, and then also a really tense, like, 
intense time for them. They were 16 or 17. And so that ended up working really well in concert. And I definitely tried to pair like what was going on in history versus what was going on in their lives so that it felt like political tensions and world history were sort of interacting with the the ebb and flow of Sophia and Antonia's lives. I did have to do, I did some research. The research, people always want to hear about the research. And it's so funny because internet research is like, I can go on YouTube and I can hear the radio announcement from D-Day. I can do, I can look at Brooklyn, like a, a specific block in Brooklyn. And then I can look at it 10 years later, a photo of it. So in some ways research isn't, it wasn't this like big digging process. I would get to a point and I would realize that I needed context or that I didn't understand what it would have felt like at that moment. And I would do a little digging around and usually get down a path or two that ended up not mattering an internet hole. (laughs) And then I would be able to sort of take out the context that was going to help me shore up the world that I was building. And I think in terms of creating a world that feels real, a lot of it just has to, at least my argument, what I think is that a lot of it has to do with commitment. So if, so my commitment to the world, if I say, this is how they felt, and I say it in a way that you as the reader believe that they felt that way, Mm -hmm. then it feels true. So it's not, I mean, it is of course about real events that happened in history. And I did do research in that regard, but a lot of it is just about creating a world that feels immersive enough that readers are willing to take a chance on it. Like a speculative novel can feel real in that way. And so I think that's more what I was going for. Interesting. I loved how you depicted the power, like the similar to Sopranos, which I'm sure, you know, I'm sure sure you got that like a trillion times. But when you see the backstory of somebody where nobody is all good or all bad and you see the humanity behind someone and the intimate moments where, you know, Sophia's dad, there was something like he was rubbing her mom's back or there's something with the shoulders or there was like this one little moment. And I was like, wow, that is like, like I'm in there and like him trying to fall asleep one night next to her. I, you just like, they're so human. Everybody is so human. I, I, I'm not describing, it just was really amazing because it, it just, it felt like I was living and breathing in these spaces. So I don't know. Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I, you know, I, of course I took a lot from The Sopranos, although I actually had not finished the series until like two weeks ago because I kept, I was sort of watching it as I was writing. And then I would have to take a long break because I knew I was going to get this comparison and I wanted to not just write The Sopranos. So I had to keep myself away from it a little bit. But of course, what it, what I think The Sopranos is so masterful at is making you love these people who are murderers and criminals. And I think that's what makes the world a better place. Like that, that empathy that art can give you for somebody who you think you might otherwise have no, nothing in common with. And that ability that art has to make you ask like, well, what would it take for me to do something violent to protect my family? Because there's a line for everybody, I think. And I think people who have a really like, rigid moral reaction. And they're like, well, they're criminals. Like I often feel like those are the people that have that like could stand to think a little bit about where their personal line is, like what, what they would do in a situation where you're called on to, to do something you never would have thought, like, what would it take for you? So I, yeah, I wanted you to be able to relate to them. I wanted you to be able to feel like you understood why they were doing what they were doing, 
even when you disagreed with it and even when it felt really sort of different from what you thought you might do yourself. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use, so I got it, and now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and It makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com. Or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. So where did you come from? Where were you, where did you grow up? <laughs> like, what was your family like? How did you develop into you? Like, Sure. So I grew up, I was born in Berkeley, California. I spent a lot of my teenage years going back and forth between California and Alaska, where my dad moved when I was like 11. So I I was in an interview once where somebody was asking me about like the multiple perspectives in the book and whether I had ever been torn between perspectives. And I have not been able to stop thinking yet about like watching my parents become two different people. And that's a little bit like more Freudian than I necessarily feel like I can get, but I I definitely think there's something there for me about wanting to understand just where different people are coming from. And then I went to college at NYU. So I moved to the East coast. I was there for about 10 years and I came back to San Francisco in 2018. I sold this book in the summer of 2018. I was traveling And then I edited for about two and a half years when I got back. So that was a really, really long, intense process. So you didn't get an MFA? I did not get an MFA. I applied to art school, I mean, to to MFA programs. I applied to only a few and I didn't get into any of them. And I spent like six months being really bitter and depressed about it. And then I started this book. So wow. I, I would that you turns out you didn't need it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think people sometimes gain a really invaluable sense of community from their MFA programs, but I also think mostly what I was looking for was time and space to prioritize writing and like a structure that made me feel like I could prioritize it. And I've had to just figure out how to do that for myself. And what, what kind of, were you doing anything writing related or adjacent those 10 to 15 years before it came out? I, w- I mean, most of my post-college years, I did different kind of odd jobs, some related to writing, some not, all of which gave me time and space to write. So 
I worked for like weird little startups. I did work a little bit in publishing for a while. I worked as a nanny a lot. I taught yoga, just anything I could do to like pay my rent and give me free time. I keep interviewing authors who said that they were a nanny at some point. And I'm like, where are all these great people when I've been looking for nannies for my kids? Well, I don't think I was an exceptional nanny, actually. (laughs) When I think back on it, I think I I wasn't like the greatest nanny of all time, but I did really appreciate the time and space that that kind of work gave me. And I really like kids. I think kids are honest and they're weird and they're cool. And I think like being exposed to that does can make you a better artist. And I shouldn't have said that. I have amazing women who have been childcare providers. I assume that now you've found some. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. So when you were writing this, did you show it to anyone regularly? Did you just sort of toil away privately at night and on your laptop? Or what was that like? I mean, that is, that's like the biggest, most intense part, I think, for me of writing a novel is every morning getting up and convincing myself to work on this thing that's sitting on my computer, that's getting to be 50,000 words long or 60,000 words long that I've been working on for two years that I don't even know if it's really a real thing. It is, it's a mental gymnastics that I can't really believe that I did when I look back on it. And I think that as daunting as it is to write a second book, not having to do that is such a privilege that I I kind of feel like I have no excuse. I did show it to people. I have a really supportive and smart partner who's one of my first readers. My mom has read the book maybe more times than I have. I have really <laughs> good friends that I can send it to. But it there's something so intense about writing a book and not knowing if it'll ever be anywhere other than on your laptop. And in some ways it's really freeing. And in some ways it's it's just like inconceivably crazy to have spent so much time doing something and not know where it's going to end up. And I know it's your first novel, but did you try, like, did you try another draft and just put it away? Like, did you try short stories or this literally was just like, Hey, I think I'll try to write. And no, no, this, I, this is like another in a series of many, many things that I've done. So I've written poetry. I've written short stories. I wrote like a sort of novel length collection of short stories at the end of college. Just like, I think I always wanted to write a novel, but it was so intimidating. And I had never, I had never started something that kept my attention for long enough. Mm -hmm. And so it, my whole life was leading up to writing a novel. It wasn't like one day I sat down and thought I'd try it. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's humbling if that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not at all. Wow. And so you you just obliquely referenced a second book. Tell me about that. The second book, I mean, it's it's not a book. It was my senior, one of my senior college projects. And it was a series of short stories, kind of interconnected narratives. Like they all took place in the same town, each of them based on a different story from Greek mythology, but like very loosely based. Like it took place in a Southern town in a modern time. And there was like this old crazy lady that I based off of that I was, I took inspiration from the story of Medusa and all of these different things to sort of, I really like that kind of reinterpretation of a classic trope or a, an archetype. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. I would not call that a second book, <laughs> but no, I, I actually meant that was really interesting. I meant like that one might be coming next. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. I have not started one. I know lots of people that by the time their book comes out, they're like, yeah, I have a draft of my second book. And I am, it 
it took me so long to write this book and it took me, it was so intense to be in the world of editing it. And then for the last year in the really intense and sort of public facing world of publicity for it, that my main project this year is like getting back into my own head and my own body and my own creative space and figuring out what's in there. And what I would, I'd be happier if I was writing. What was the, what's like the short version of the story of how it came, how you sold it? Like, uh, so I finished this draft in the summer, in the fall of 2017, my, like the novel that I wrote by myself, I spent like three months querying agents really like doggedly, like a few a day for many months. I had a spreadsheet. I, it was like a hundred people. And then I, so I interned for a literary agent in college. I looked up her website because I was going to send her my query letter and like hope that I could get her to read the letter and actually, of course, hope that she wanted to represent me. But all I was going to say was like, will you critique this letter? And I found one of somebody that I had gone to college with and been at a French class with once who I was Facebook friends with turned out to be an agent at her agency. So I wrote her and I said, Dana, I'm, this is so weird, but I just came across your bio on Elizabeth Weed's website. And I would love to talk to you about this thing I'm doing. And she said, great, send it to me. So after all of that, like legwork, it did end up being kind of a personal connection, but Dana and I had, we have the best chemistry and it's finding an agent was something that I was sort of nervous and bitter about. Like I thought it was going to be, I thought an agent was going to be a middleman, like somebody standing in between me and my editor. And instead I feel like, I don't think everybody has this, but I really found a creative partner. And so that relationship has been this like really important steady constant for me. And we sold, we edited for a few months together and we sold the book that summer, 2018. Wow. That's awesome. I love the book group. I didn't realize you were with the book group. Yeah. I love the book group too. (laughs) Yeah. They're awesome. All the ladies there. They're wonderful. Um, That's really exciting. So what advice would you have? Somebody's just starting out. This, this is like a, like a wonderkin success story, right? It is. Yeah. So can it happen to anyone? Should people keep trying? You know, what's your, do you regret anything? Are you particularly proud of anything or thinks anything worked particularly well? Yeah. For me, I can tell you what worked for me, which no, like it, it won't just happen to anybody. And there are so many people that deserve this that won't get it. And that like, that's something that I've had to come to terms with too. Like, I think that I worked really hard on this book and I'm really grateful for the success that it's getting. But I think there are lots of people that work really hard and never get even a fraction of this sort of validation or attention. So I will say that like, it's not a fair world in that way. There's just more talented people than there is space in the behemoth of modern publishing. I will say that for me, what worked was doing everything in a way that felt good. So I think I made all of my decisions with a lot of integrity. I wrote because I cared about the characters and I cared about the book. And so I could convince myself that even if nothing happens, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm spending time with people I love in this book. I'm, I'm spending my time in a way that feels crazy some days and, and really fulfilling others. And then I've, I've managed to surround myself with people who have my best interests at heart. And so I guess one piece of advice that's concrete that I might say is wait for the people who care about the same things in your book that you do. 
Mm-hmm. I think it, it, I was lucky. These were the first people I ended up with. And I think if I had ended up with people that I could tell weren't going to work as hard for me or didn't care as much, it would have been really hard to say no to that. Yep. But I think I would, I think I would encourage people to, to wait for the right fit in your mm-hmm. team if that's where you get, because that's been just invaluable. And I know you started the conversation by saying that, that the book is, there were things that they were done uniquely through literature in telling the story, but is, is this going to be a movie? I've had lots of conversations this fall with producers and film people, and that's a very new world for me. I'm assuming it will be. I'm talking to lots of people that seem like they see it as really cinematic, and I really like adaptation. I think it's interesting, and I'm really excited to see what the right person can do with this book. So no, no concrete plans, but I'm hoping it will be. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Naomi. I mean, I you really gave me, I don't know, exactly seven and a half hours or whatever it was of of entertainment and really like transportation in the most <laughs> metaphorical way or whatever. I didn't say that very well, but I mean, you really just like took me into this whole other world and I loved it. So I'll just say that. Thank you. I That's what I look for when I read. So every time somebody tells me that that's what happened to them with my book, I'm just really honored. So thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Well, now I have to just quickly ask what you're reading or some some book that you yeah, feel did that for you. Yeah, I have been fully unable to concentrate on reading anything since my own book came out. The first book I enjoyed after my book came out was How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu, which is coming out in a few weeks. Right now I'm reading Song of Solomon, which is my last Toni Morrison. I read all of the others and I've been saving this one for a rainy day. So that's obviously going to be on my top 10 books of all time, along with every other Toni Morrison novel. So okay. that's, I'm, I'm going through that as slowly as possible. Good for you. This is awesome. All right. Well, I can't wait to eventually read your next book and <laughs> just sort of follow your career and yeah, well done. Thank you so much. <laughs> and good luck. You seem really busy. You're doing a lot of incredible things. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. All right. All right. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 